listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 202. We are a week late this time, but we're bringing you some fresh voices from the Strike for Black Lives on July 20th. But first, the news. It's probably been a while since you've been inside your favorite restaurant, and you probably can't wait to get back in there and order your usual meal once indoor dining resumes. But a recent study of tipped restaurant workers in New York might lead you to question exactly what you're paying for when you eat out. One Fair Wage conducted a survey of New York restaurant workers in the COVID-19 era and found that tipped workers face deep racial and gender disparities in their earnings. Although there have been efforts to reform New York's wage laws for tipped workers, restaurant workers, like servers and bartenders, are generally still subject to the so-called subminimum wage, which basically sets a minimum wage that is below the regular minimum wage. In New York City, the subminimum wage for tipped workers is 10 bucks an hour, compared to $15 an hour for the general workforce. This is based on the assumption that a worker's tips will add up to an amount that meets or exceeds the standard base wage when it's all added up. Unfortunately, it doesn't all add up a lot of the time. The One Fair Wage survey found that this tipped wage system has resulted in staggering wage inequality. Nationally, there is a nearly $5 per hour wage gap between the tipped earnings of black women and white men. And in New York, that gap expands to a stunning $8 an hour. This is the economic context in which restaurant workers are now struggling amid the pandemic, with so many eateries still shuttered or having to drastically scale back service. The study found that most workers and employers surveyed reported that tips were down at least 50% at their establishment. The devastation of the restaurant industry will presumably hit black and women workers the hardest because they tend to earn the least, and that makes it harder to qualify for adequate unemployment benefits. I talked to Saru Jayaraman about the findings of the One Fair Wage Report and potential solutions for these inequities. We knew, not everybody knew or listened to us when we said workers of color were disproportionately impacted by the subminimum wage for tipped workers. You know, we had long said it's a legacy of slavery and that workers of color are segregated into lower tipping segments of the industry and lower tipping positions. But uh, the pandemic really laid bare that as a result of those horrible inequities, workers of color, everybody was screwed that got a subminimum wage, you know, when the pandemic hit, but workers of color were particularly screwed. Uh, and women of color in particular. And the reason is that when the pandemic hit, you know, close to 10 million restaurant workers lost their jobs. Our estimate is that about 60% were not able to access unemployment insurance. And of that, um, a, a huge numbers of workers that didn't get unemployment insurance were telling us that they were being told by their state unemployment insurance offices that their subminimum wage plus tips was too low to meet the minimum threshold to qualify for benefits. And that was way more the case for workers of color, and particularly women of color, who tended to work in more casual restaurants like IHOP and Denny's, um, where they got cash tips. Cash tips often went underreported by the employers or unreported. And so in many cases, you know, it looked like the workers are nothing in tips or very little in tips. And so if it was generally a problem that the subminimum wage plus tips was too low to meet minimum thresholds, it was much worse for workers of color. We heard many instances where workers of color, frankly, just, you know, the subminimum wage is so low, they just work for tips. I'm not even talking about undocumented workers. I'm just, I'm talking about workers in our industry who just worked for tips more often than not workers in casual restaurants and therefore more often than not when people of color, women of color. 
And when you work off the books and just for kids, it looks like you didn't work at all. You're not able to access, access any kind of benefits when you're laid off. So this huge, huge disproportionate impact on workers of color, you know, at a time when they're already more impacted by the health crisis because of poverty and underlying health issues in, in communities of color and a host of other issues related to health. And when you put on top of that, that in the nation's largest workforce, the nation's largest employer of workers of color and women and women of color, that women of color are so disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, it really does create this perfect storm of crisis. Um, and so it's really two key findings you're looking at. One is to read it, to give new updated data to say what we already knew, which is that there's a $5 per hour wage gap between white men and black women in most of the country among tipped workers, tipped restaurant workers. It's $8 an hour in New York. New York is 60% worse than the rest of the country. And generally we find that's true in a lot of urban areas where you see white men making a lot of uh, money in tips and women of color being segregated into the casual restaurants and dive bars making a lot less. But even then when they work in fine dining side by side with the white guys, customer bias results in them earning a lot less in tips. So that was one finding. The second key finding was that workers in New York reported that tips are down anywhere from 50 to 75%. And, and of course, the workers who earn the least in tips, which are the women of color, are going to be most impacted by tips being down of anybody. And so um, they're the ones who are suffering the most in, because of both, both findings. Um, and when, again, when you compound that with the fact that they're also the ones suffering the most in terms of health, and you look at the very precarious situation of all workers right now, do I go back to work for a sub-minimum wage when tips are down 75% or do I worry about my health and my family's health? Well, those questions, that choice is just so much worse for workers of color and particularly for women of color because on the health side, their health concerns are worse and on the economic side, their economic situation is worse. And so, you know, that, that choice between life and livelihood is just much, much, much worse for women of color because of the two findings that we put out today. Can we tell how much worse things have gotten uh, because of the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, I imagine that there are just people like who just aren't working at all at this point if they're working in front of the house. So the government data we put out is obviously government data from the, before the pandemic, but we were trying to show that these inequities existed prior to the pandemic. So all the government data is pre-pandemic because there frankly is no government data that's come out yet post-pandemic about wage disparities. So that's pre-pandemic, but we did surveys with about 77, 80 New York restaurant workers who right now over the last couple of weeks about their situation. Um, they, you know, that you do have a good number who've gone back to work for about 10 hours a week. And the reason is, and this we've heard from workers all over the country about this, employers who took PPP were felt compelled to bring as many workers back as possible because I'm sure you know how PPP works. If you don't bring back people, that loan is not a forgivable loan, it's a loan. And so employers were scrambling to hire as many of their people back as possible. And the way a lot of them did it is to hire people back at like 10 hours each so that workers could, some of them could keep their benefits. Not all of them got the benefits, but some of them could keep their benefits 
But then also for the employer, it looks like they have more people, they have more payroll for PPP. So um, they hired lots of people back at, you know, two little hours. And, uh, and the workers, therefore, are in this very, very difficult choice. We're hearing from workers all over the country. I'm in this very difficult situation of choosing between my health and, you know, 10 hours of work a week when tips are down 75% at a sub-minimum wage. It is a ridiculous, you know, it's a preposterous proposal. And in a lot of cities, New York City and Boston, for example, it's so preposterous that employers, many of them have moved to one paying one fair wage just because they have to, because the market demands it, because they can't get their workers to come back. You know, but for women of color who work at Denny's and IHOP, um, you know, we are the closest that we've ever been to workers saying, I'm not going to go back to work without one fair wage, which is an amazing place to be in. And by the same token, you are seeing a lot of women faced with a very, very difficult choice to make right now. Um, so, and, and as I'm saying, it's just so much worse for those women of color. In terms of the discrimination, um, do you anticipate that would, that would actually get worse? I mean, the disparity has gotten worse because um, <laughs> everything that we talked about in terms of the segregation of women into casual restaurants and the less tipping for women resulted in them getting a lot less in unemployment insurance and them being much more on the brink of starvation, homelessness. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start getting emotional, but, you know, you know, we started a fund, an emergency fund for these workers on March 16th. And when we started, the, we've, we've had 200,000 people apply for relief. We've raised $22 million to hand out $500 payments to each of these workers. It's a drop in the bucket compared to the need. Um, but, you know, we're in communication now with 200,000 workers. That's how we did those surveys in New York. And um, initially, we heard a lot about people's struggles with unemployment insurance, just ridiculous struggles with unemployment insurance. And I kept saying to reporters over the last couple of months, mark my words, you're going to see this turn coming in a few months where people are going to be starving and out on the streets and unable to survive. And I am not talking about a tiny workforce. I'm talking about the nation's largest workforce. And over the last week in particular, we've started to get very heartbreaking and uh, just mind-blowing comments on social media from these workers, women saying, I am preparing to steal food for my children because I have no other access to food. Or women saying, I don't have gas, to, I don't have money for gas to get to the food bank to feed my children. Or one woman was standing in line at the Walmart she had only $30 to her name. Her groceries way exceeded that. Um, she had to leave because she, she couldn't pay for them, but then she got our $500 payment. And it's the only way she was able to feed her kids. I mean, I can tell you thousands of stories like this. And now lots of people over the last week sending us pictures of their electric bills saying, we don't know how much longer we can be in touch with you because we're about to lose our internet, phone, light. So we are on the precipice with a lot of these, particularly women of color, people of color, of just total and utter devastation. Um, these, these eviction 
you know, can't, you know, evictions are about to happen and it's mostly our people who are going to face that. And so I, I've been saying all along, I don't think people understand a, how big this industry is, B, how deep is the level of crisis, C, how much worse it is for, for some of these single mothers who are the majority of the industry. And now here we are. And that is what we're hearing. As more restaurants hopefully come back online, what might be some ways, um, either through policy or through some other measure, that some of these gaps could be mitigated so that whatever the restaurant industry uh, <laughs> becomes yeah. um, after there's this recovery, um, how will we recover in a better way? Well, you know what I'm going to say, like, we need one fair wage now because people are being asked to go back to work and it's ridiculous to make them go back to work without a full minimum wage when tips are so low. It's criminal. Uh, it just, we just need that policy now. We need unemployment insurance not be measured on income prior to the pandemic, but rather just given to anybody who worked. Um, because that is a very, it's a very desperate, desperate situation for so many people. Um, obviously, we need paid sick leave. You know, obviously, we need health care. But I think just for basic survival, one fair wage and universal unemployment insurance are the two top things people need right now. You know, basic survival, people need to be paid for their work and they need income when they can't get work. That was Saru Jayaraman, founder of One Fair Wage. Nonprofit staffers and political organizers, along with journalists and art museum staff, have been undergoing quite a unionization wave lately. The Nonprofit Professional Employees Union, or NPEU, has done this through 29 straight voluntary recognitions, but as you'll hear in a moment, that streak has been halted by the Scholars Strategy Network, a Boston based nonprofit. I'm joined by Katie Barrows and Kayla Blado of NPEU to tell us about their hot streak and what's going on at SSN. I'm Kayla Blado. I'm the president of the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union. And I'm Katie Barrows. I'm the vice president of communications for the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union. So first off, we wanted to ask you about, um, you've had something like 29 straight voluntary recognitions and a bunch of those really recently during lockdown. Um, so tell us a little bit about, about this sort of wave of organizing and why it's happening now. Yeah. So, um, NPEU has been around since 1998, but in the last few years, we've seen a ton of nonprofit workers who really want to organize. And so, We've actually doubled our, more than doubled our membership in the last year alone. Um, and particularly during the coronavirus pandemic, we've seen a ton of new organizing. Uh, in April, we had seven different units either ask for recognition or receive recognition in like a two-week period, which yeah. was great. Um, and since then, we've had a few more units um, ask for recognition as well. So we're really seeing uh, nonprofit workers coming forward and organizing at their workplace. Yeah. So, of course, nonprofits tend to be staffed by people who believe in the cause that they're working for, which can often sort of militate against them wanting to challenge the boss. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that sort of difficulty and how lately it seems like all of a sudden that's not such a problem anymore? Yeah. So, um, as you mentioned, nonprofit employees usually really care about the mission of their organizations. Um, 
and that you know has um, caused them not not to um, kind of be the face of uh, union members, but you know over time, um, nonprofit members work long hours for low wages. Um, and they see that unions um, can be a way to improve their workplace and make it more productive and really help their mission. Um, so nonprofit uh, employees are starting to, um, you know, organize unions and reach out to us. We, we get almost a lead a day um, from nonprofit wow. employees across the country. Wow. Um, and so, as we said, you have gotten a lot of these recognized voluntarily, again, I guess the nonprofit mission tends to uh, make union busting a bad look. But yeah, so I just wanted to ask you about that before we get into the specifics of this particular case we're talking about today, about the willingness of, of a lot of these employers to voluntarily recognize. Yeah, I mean, um, I think one of NPEU's strengths is that we want to work uh, to make the union and, and the organization as strong as possible. Um, the reason that this is because we care about the mission of the organization. And so when the union comes forward and asks to be voluntarily recognized by management, you know, there might be a little hemming and hawing management might have to talk to lawyers and whatever, get their ducks in a row. But eventually management usually sees that having a union is going to strengthen their organization, that it's the workers already come together and done all, all this organizing and so it really is just going to hurt it's going to drag out the process it's going to hurt the organization to try to fight it um and so at that point you know we can usually get recognition we work out the bargaining unit composition uh and then going forward you know it it, it, it does get tense sometimes but i think everyone wants the same thing we want the organization to succeed and so um you know, we're not trying to trash them publicly or anything like that. It ends up, um, you know, hopefully being kind of a collaborative experience working together in order to strengthen the mission of the organization and make it a sustainable place for the workers. Now to SSN. So um, first off, I guess, tell us about this organization, what they do and why its staff are interested in joining the union. Uh, yeah, so SSN is a nonprofit um, dedicated to advancing democracy and research-based policy solutions, as their website says, through connecting scholars um, at universities and colleges across the country to journalists, civic leaders, and public officials. Mm -hmm. So they kind of operate as a network with chapters, um, and they try to get um, scholarly research out there about you know, how to improve democracy and like good policy um, positions uh, to make, you know, to make the country a more democratic place. Um, and so they have in total 1,500 members um, and a lot of them are political scientists, sociologists, historians, um, many study labor. Um, so folks like uh, Jake Rosenfeld, um, Eileen Applebaum, uh, Doran Warren, Eric Loomis, those um, are or were all members of SSN. And so, yeah, so the staff are interested in joining NPEU, and what is going on with all that? Uh, so the staff, um, the staff kind of want the same things that all of us want at a nonprofit. They want more democracy at the workplace, more transparency, and more equity. Having a union really is the best way to achieve those things. Right. Um, and so... 
we went about it the same way that, you know, all of our units do asking for voluntary recognition um, via email, you know, with a mission like that, we kind of expected this to be one of our normal organizing processes where management would work with us collaboratively on a bargaining unit composition and we could um, kind of get this thing going. And um, instead, management has um, not recognized the union. They're forcing their staff to have an election at the Trump NLRB, which we all know is incredibly problematic right now and very anti-worker. Um, and then also they hired uh, this notorious union busting law firm, Ogletree Deacons, to um, file the paperwork, as they say. But this this law firm um, is a notorious union busting law firm. You can look at their website for 30 seconds and get a picture of that. Um, they've also been involved in kind of horrible policies against voter disenfranchising and immigration policy across the country. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's, you know, they claim they're being neutral and letting the election process happen, but there actually is no reason for the, to make their workers go to an election when we have a super majority of cards signed. Um, and they also don't need to pay this crazy expensive law firm when mm -hmm. really they need to just work with their staff and start this process collaboratively. And so we're really hoping, um, you know, we filed for an election, but we're still hoping that, um, management will recognize, um, and we're seeing a ton of public pressure from the members, mm -hmm. um, from former um, former workers there, from other workers at research organizations who are really supporting them and calling on management to fire Ogletree Deacons and um, voluntarily recognize the staff union. Yeah, and so what is their argument, I guess, for not voluntarily recognizing the union? Um, it's kind of unclear at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, they have said that they, they want to remain neutral and that the, um, the NLRB process is the best way to do this, to recognize, to have a union and that, you know, if the NLRB um, election happens and they get a union, that they will bargain in good faith, um, which is all well and good, but we all know that having an NLRB election is an unnecessary step to force the union to go through, particularly for, I mean, their staff is small too. It's like 10 people. Yeah. Um, and they could, they work with the, these, their coworkers every day. Um, they could just recognize them and not go make them go through this unnecessary process. Um, and, and we know, and, and SSN's very own research. I mean, a lot of their scholars are pro labor researchers yeah. who um, release labor research saying that the election process is totally unnecessary, that it gives management an upper hand, it gives them time to bust the union. Um, we just, we basically think that there's no benefit to it um, and that they should just come to the table and recognize their staff. And just to add on to that, yeah. one of, you know, one of the, the their talking points, uh, management talking points is that the, uh, an NLRB election is a democratic process, and of course we know that's not true. Right. Um, you know, when only six percent of the private sector is union, um, it really shows that uh, you know elections don't, um, you know, elections aren't aren't really on the side of employees. They they definitely or neutral at all. They favor employers, 
Um, and it, you know, it gives a lot of time to employers to hire union busted firms and to run anti-union campaigns. Um, and it allows for employer intimidation. Um, and uh, it also, there's like not many consequences for employers for breaking the rules. So it's not like our, you know, our regular electoral elections. This is not the same kind of democratic process that you, um, that, that any scholar of democracy would support. So what are the next steps, I guess, that the workers are taking in this moment? So the, so the next step for, for us is um, management has a deadline of July 28th to contest the bargaining unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and their management says that they will not contest any positions and, and not file any appeals. So we're really holding them to that. In the interim, um, SSN Union is encouraging supporters to share research about card check and the benefits of voluntary recognition, um, to share stories about um, the work of SSN staff who are in union um, and how well they've done. Um, And then another one of their requests is to email the board members, um, encouraging for board members of SSN to push for voluntary recognition instead of um, forcing this election. Um, and then one of the last other ways to support them is to donate to um, Democratic organizations or pledge to Democratic organizations once uh, they receive voluntary recognition. Yeah. Um, excellent. Anything else people should know about all of this? Yeah. Um, even though we're um, SSN's management is forcing these workers to an NLRB election. Mm-hmm. We know we're going to win the election. We have a super majority of cards. Um, and so we're really hoping that once we um, have a union there, that management will bargain in good faith and that we'll be able to achieve the kind of things that, that people form unions for, um, try to get uh, uh, equity and transparency and democracy at their workplace. Um, and you know, this isn't the last that you've heard from nonprofit professional employees union. We're organizing a ton and we'll hopefully have some big announcements in the next few months. That was Katie Barrows and Caleb Lido of NPEU. Under Trump, the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, has been churning out one rollback after another of basic labor protections for the past three years. But they've really outdone themselves with their most recent attack on a basic tenet of the National Labor Relations Act. The board announced that it will be revisiting a crucial policy that has protected unions' collective bargaining agreements since the Great Depression. It's called the Contract Bar Rule. And basically, it guarantees that after a contract is signed between a union and an employer, there's a three-year period during which the contract can be implemented without any attempt at decertifying the union. It's basically setting a term for a contract to remain in place and for the union to be guaranteed that they will not come under attack from either the employer or from a rival union. May seem odd that a union contract is basically guaranteed to remain in place no matter what, but the idea is that for a contract to be effectively enacted and enforced, a union needs stability. The employer would also generally benefit from this stability because they would have a set period during which they know that the contract and the union are going to be firmly in place and that any attempt at challenging the union following the contract bar period would be made in light of the three years that a union had an opportunity to represent the bargaining unit. This three-year contract bar term might include 
making some compromises on some provisions if, for example, the company were facing bankruptcy. Labor advocates say that the contract bar would help protect the union from being ousted impulsively during periods of tension. Historically, the contract bar rule has dwelled in the esoterica of labor law, but the NLRB has dredged it up in a case involving poultry plant workers in Delaware and attempts by one employee to petition for a vote to decertify his union, United Food and Commercial Workers Local 27. That union has, interestingly, been at odds with the management of the company, Mountaire, over major occupational safety issues, including alleged toxic chemical exposures and more recently an outbreak of COVID-19. While Mountaire argues that the petition was part of a genuine campaign led by dissident workers, the UFCW argues that the decertification attempt is a cynical ploy by the company to destroy a long-established union and more broadly to attack a fundamental principle in labor law. I talked to Craig Becker, general counsel of the AFL-CIO, about the significance of this latest move by the NLRB and why the contract bar is important. There's a kind of a, um, a binary, a rhetorical binary between uh, uh, Democratic boards and, uh, and, and Republican boards, uh, which, you know, the rhetoric is a free choice, uh, you know, versus stability. So the Republican board say, we're in favor of free choice. We're in favor of free choice, you know, so long as it's a free choice uh, exercise to you know, get out of the union as opposed to get in. Whereas um, there are a set of bars uh, which have been developed historically, which are intended to protect that free choice for some period of time. I mean, we give people a choice to choose members of Congress, but we don't say they can revise that choice two days later or six weeks later or even a year later. All right. That is, we have elected representatives and they serve for some period of time. That's what the bar rules do. So the statute says if you had a valid election, you can't have another valid election for another year. We have a recognition bar which says if there's voluntary recognition, you can't have an election for some reasonable period of time, six to 12 months out. That's what they're trying to revise. Um, and we impose the Dana requirement in the rulemaking, which, which we just filed suit against. And then you have a contract bar. So if you enter into a contract, um, you can't have an election. An employer can't withdraw recognition for the period of the contract up to three years. I mean, they're all rules which are intended to allow the choice to be effectuated for some reasonable period of time. Um, the Republican boards always are on on the side of we want choice. We want people to be able to revise their choice as opposed to the stability of the relationships. And this board, you know, has been more aggressive than others. So now they're trying to attack the recognition bar. Now they're trying to attack the contract bar, which has, you know, really been untouched for uh, since the act was adopted, really. If the contract bar is... Uh effectively, I guess, I don't know, repealed, destroyed in this decision, would it have an immediate effect? Yeah, well, I think it would have a couple of different effects. Um, one is, you know, the board always decides whether it's going to apply its decisions retroactively or not. Um, it'd be a little hard to imagine that they would apply a decision like this retroactively, but who knows? Um, so it could, you know, open up uh, to challenge all collective bargaining relationships across the country right away after, a, you know, that, are, that aren't within the one-year statutory bar after an election. But right, you know, you don't, you don't have an election unless someone petitions for it, and you know, 
polling data suggests most people are quite happy with their uh, representative, and there's very few decertification petitions filed. So, you know, it's not like the House would fall down, but it would make the relationships more unstable. And you know, the other thing to note is um, there is a real employer interest here. Right? That is, employers, or many employers, want to have a stable relationship, and they don't want a hothouse where the union feels it has to constantly be aggressively trying to please the employees. Right? That is, you know, there may be a case where the union has to make a compromise because it sees, you know, this employer really is struggling economically. And if they know that any decision like that can lead to a petition, that there won't be time for, uh, you know, for tempers to cool and for people to see it may have been a good decision after all, it makes for a much less stable uh, relationship. So I think you know employers recognize that there's a reason not to have that kind of constant pressure on the union. That was Craig Becker, general counsel of the AFL-CIO. The other day on Twitter, I saw someone joking, instead of working at home, think of it as living at work. That, of course, has long been the freelancer's lifestyle, and especially so in the age of the smartphone, where we are always expected to be on. But now, of course, lockdown has brought the work-from-home situation to many more of us, and we're seeing the rather unpleasant results. A study is just out of 2,000 UK adults, and it found that working from home means people are working a lot more, up to 28 hours of extra work a month. That is like adding most of a work week to your month. Uh, The study was reported on in the Metro, which said, quote, the research revealed that a quarter, 25%, feel pressured to respond more quickly and be available online for longer than they normally would, with one in eight, 12%, now signing in before 7 a.m. and 18% still working after 7 p.m., end quote. 56% of the respondents reported feeling more anxious and stressed, God knows why, and 31% are having difficulty sleeping. The study was commissioned by LinkedIn and the Mental Health Foundation, and a spokesperson for the Mental Health Foundation noted, people working from home during these unprecedented times are at a greater risk of burnout due to the high-stakes environment we find ourselves in both globally and personally. We cannot have the same business-as-usual expectations on ourselves or of our employees. There simply aren't enough hours in the day to work full-time, look after children at home, and keep up our other responsibilities. End quote cool, now make it policy. Of course, working at home is still preferable to going back to a coronavirus-laden workplace, but this is a good reminder that people who are working from home are still working, and that rather than getting a break because the commute is now gone, many of us are working hard and longer, and that's not even getting into the issue of childcare. This week, as protests continue around the country against structural racism and white supremacy, as Donald Trump threatens to send in more federal troops to make more cities look like Portland currently does, workers took to the streets on Monday as workers as part of a strike for Black lives. 
led by SEIU, the Teamsters, the Communications Workers of America, the Amalgamated Transit Union, United Farm Workers, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and the Fight for 15, as well as the Movement for Black Lives, Poor People's Campaign, Future Coalition, and the U.S. Youth Climate Strike Coalition, and others. We don't know exactly how many workers went on strike, but the coalition estimates that 20,000 workers were on strike or participated in a short walkout for eight minutes and 46 seconds. The amount of time, of course, the police officer knelt on George Floyd's neck to kill him. We're going to hear right now from some of the people who went on strike and participated in other actions. First, we'll hear from Adriana Alvarez, a Chicago-based McDonald's worker and a leader in the Fight for 15 movement. She spoke to me a few days ahead of the strike. My name is Adriana Alvarez. I'm with the Fight for 15 for the past six years now, and I'm going on strike on Monday because I'm tired of uh, struggling. I'm tired of, you know, my fellow coworkers struggling, um, and it's time that we demand justice. Have you been on strike with them before? I've been on strike many, many times and uh, still have a lot of my coworkers, especially the kitchen ladies, because they're the uh, the ones that have actually been there the longest. So typically we have about four or five from my store um, striking with me. Um, lately, it's been a little harder because I feel like because of the pandemic, but um, I know they still definitely support the whole having a union. Are there particular demands that you're going on strike for this time? Going on strike, obviously, because of overall livable wages and the right to form a union, but also um, this time around for, you know, justice for Black communities. Um, we want elected officials and candidates at every level to be able to use their executive uh, powers, you know, their legislative powers to help the people in need. Um, corporations must take immediate action to stop racism wherever it is, especially in our workplaces. Um, includes technical corporations to raise wages, to allow us to have a union, uh, to provide health care, sick leave, you know, simple stuff like PPE, and obviously have a voice uh, to be able to plan and create safe workplaces because we are the ones working. Um, and also every worker must have the opportunity to form a union, no matter where they work. I think that's very important. Have there been changes at your workplace because of the efforts that you've engaged in with your coworkers? Definitely. We've gotten raises because of actions that we've done. We've gotten respect because of actions that we've done. Um, Just before this whole coronavirus hit, um, we were having trouble getting our sick pay, which is the law. And right around the time that it's starting to get bad in March, um, we filed a petition and presented it to them. And now it is a whole lot easier for us to get our sick pay. So that's another win for us. Tress Andrews, a laundry service worker at a Detroit nursing home, went on her first strike on Monday, and it may not be her last. My name is Tress Andrews, and I work, I've been working over 20 years in the nursing home industry. We went on strike yesterday for Black Lives Matter. We went on strike because we want the owners <laughs> to be, um, held accountable for having the proper PPE, the proper staffing um, in the building for the residents to be taken care of properly. And we also would like to uh, have better wages um, um, and better health care. So 
Yes, we went on strike yesterday. I was excited. I was, I the the all my coworkers came out, and I was just ecstatic because you know this was something that we was looking forward to. It was something that we wanted to do because we we tired. We need somebody to be held accountable for the things that go on in the workplace. So. It turned out very well. We had a lot of participation, and everybody was feeling good and ready. So, um, yes, because we feel like with the Black Lives Matter, we are part of that because we're supposed to be essential workers taking care of the most vulnerable people in the world, but the owners do not treat us like we are worth what we're worth. So it meant a lot to us to be out there. And I wanna give I wanna give kudos to my union for all the hard work they have done to help us to get to this point and their leadership along with me. I'm a union stewardess, you know, I feel I'm a leader too, you know, because the people concerns I always bring and talk about, you know. Right now, I'm in the laundry department, but I have worked in activities, and I do do CNA work, but not there, not at that home. I've got a home health care business I started on my own. What does it work like? Is it exhausting? Is it? It's been very stressful because they had a COVID unit. And like I said, you know, I have my dad is diabetic, just recovering from cancer, and my granny is 90 years old. It's got some health issues, and my daughter is 14. You know, it was very stressful working there because, like I said, they wasn't giving out the proper PPE, and then they wasn't giving out the proper training, plus the staffing was terrible, and then and then the pay. And if you went out sick, you get no money to be out sick during the COVID, during this pandemic. So it was very stressful. Anxiety was very high. And just, you know, concern, worry, you know, you want to keep your job because you need money, but then you're afraid to go to work. Did you have any coworkers who got sick? We had coworkers and residents. Was that pretty nerve-wracking yeah. for all of you? It was nerve-wracking because the administration staff never would be honest when I would go to them to ask them how many COVID people we got. If some of the if our coworkers out with COVID, he would never be honest with us. He kept saying we didn't have any, and then it, when it was all said and done, we had plenty of them. You know, they were being dishonest with the work with the employees, and I thought that was very unfair. You know, because me as a union leader, I went and I asked because employees wanted to know because they had been hearing from Facebook media. Or some of the friends calling them, telling them they had the COVID is why they ain't been to work. Or what. And I thought that they were supposed to document that so that that could be public. You know, who has COVID in the building, whether it's residents or staff. Has the situation gotten better? Is it like more stable now? Well, it's a, yeah, I guess you would say it's a little more stable now because they once I went and had a conversation with the administrator, he had locked the building on down because he first didn't have a building locked down. You know, he said he let the people in and out. 
Yeah, it has got a little more stable. What is your hope for the management? Do you think they'll listen to you this time around? Well, that that is my hope, uh, you know, that they will hear us, you know, and this was the beginning, the Black Lives Matter strike. That was the beginning of something that I hope turns into a conversation with them, you know, because we're not going to stop until somebody listens to us. You know what I'm saying? Because we are essential workers. Do you think there'll be more strikes in your future? Possibility if they don't, you know, have a conversation with us, you know. What was it like in Detroit? Did you see a lot of other workers um, engaging in similar things or was it? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I did. It was, you know, I got a chance to see, you know, on the media and then pictures and stuff. Yes, it was a lot. It was across the state of Michigan. People were striking for Black Lives Matter and, 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 you know, to hold these owners accountable for the way they've been treating us, you know. It was big yesterday. It was big. You have anything you want people to know about what, what what's happening in Detroit right now? Uh, well, one thing I want people to know is that the nursing home workers are, are, are tired and fed up and they're ready to have a voice at the table and to, to be recognized not only by as central workers, but just by the owners holding them accountable of the type of work that we do. And, and now that it's the COVID, the pandemic, our lives is in danger and they don't want to pay us what we deserve. That's one thing I want everybody to know is that we, we, we is sick and tired. You know what I'm saying? We, we ready for them to understand that we are doing this hard work and we want to be paid for what we do and quit and of poverty wages. That's my take on it. Constance Lee, an adjunct professor at Valencia College, organized a caravan representing adjuncts at our school and other activists in the community to fight for racial equity at their institution, as well as union representation for the many precariously employed adjuncts. How'd things go today? I think they went really, really well. Uh, they had, we had a great turnout. It rained at the appropriate times. Basically, when we were driving, it was raining. And when we stopped, it stopped raining. And that's a big win for being Florida tropical and doing anything after like 10, 10 a.m. Because it, it's a tropical climate. It rains every day here. Yeah. So the stars were aligned <laughs> and something. <laughs> totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the main message was about the intersectionality of Black Lives Matter which is about um, decolonizing everything, uh, work, labor, education, the government, the police system, the uh, prison industrial complex. Uh, so it's a very like broad uh, movement. And then our involvement, so it's that cross-sectioned with the adjuncts fighting for our labor rights and that we want to, uh, we deserve to have better rights better pay, benefits, and things like that. So uh, the decision was made collectively to do a um, car caravan. So we all gathered in the morning uh, around 1130 to decorate cars and pass out the information of where we were going. We wanted to keep it pretty hushed because we really wanted to make sure that, um, one, the police weren't involved. I think that's really important if you're doing anything that's Black Lives Matter because um, the police 
has a long, long history of racial discrimination and brutality against people of color. So the less police involvement we can have, I think the better. Um, the police were called at one of the stops, but that was like, it was, it was handled pretty swiftly. Um, yeah, so it's like decorate the cars, honk, make noise, like stay together. Um, and so to let the community know what's going on and then go to specific homes of people that are high up in the Valencia administration. So Sandy Shugert, who is the um, president of Valencia, went to her, his house. And then we went to Amy Bosley's house, who's head of HR. And she's really been the main, like, I don't want to say attack dog. I feel like that's like too dehumanizing, but she's been the real arm. The like, what word am I looking for? Uh, like, like she's like the like the the police force within the school. Um, like we had we tried to have a meeting uh, about a year ago, and she came in said we couldn't called campus security on us completely blocked us from meeting. Like she's the one. Like if anybody's gonna really be in your face about the union stopping us from unionizing, it's going to be her, not so much Sandy Shugert. Um, so we went to her house, and at that place, that's where the police were called by some neighbors. We didn't get to see either of the people, um, so I'm not sure if they were home. That wasn't really, like, my position. My position was more of organizing beforehand and then speaking at both places and, like, leading chants and sort of, like, being the loud, the loud mouth voice <laughs> for the group because many people did stay in their cars. Um, some people got out of their car when we did park, but they stayed at their car, um, especially because it, we had so many people. Some people were way down the line and, and wanted to see it. Um, we used technology, which I think is really great. We had like a, a Zoom call-in number. So while I was speaking and a student was speaking and another person who was in their car um, didn't get out, they could speak over the phone so their voice could still be heard, which I think is beautiful. Like we have to remember to use as much um, technology and social media for social change as possible. You know, so it's like, we need the protest, we need social distance, but we also need the social media element to it as well. Um, yeah, I, it, it always is like a little dicey. We have people driving and we drove to one side of Orlando and then we drove all the way to the other side and actually into another suburb of Orlando and like keeping everyone together. But it, 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 it <laughs> Somehow everybody stayed together. And then people joined in, like, as this caravan kept going. Like, it was really by the time we got to the second place, it was, like, growing and growing and growing. And then um, Florida Student Power Group that just disrupted the Ron DeSantis conference that he had today. Um, after they did their disrupting, they, like, joined us uh, for the second house. This was really awesome because they were just, like, super bombs, let's go. You know, it's like, ah, oh, yes, more energy and more youth energy. Um, I really wanted to have as much youth uh, student power as possible. Uh, but I know a lot of students have kind of become really, like, disconnected from the school. Like, I know I reached out to several clubs and never, didn't hear anything back from them. And I'm like, you know, I get it because we haven't had school school since, like, March. And now it's mid-July, almost August. So I totally get that. You know, they're not doing any kind of club stuff. Um, but, yeah, it, I I think it, I feel like it was really successful. Uh, and it was kind of fun to, to to see people again, especially as an organizer, like, just 
see people that you've been video chatting with, even if it's like through their car window and just waving uh, to have like that moment of human connection and that we're, we're not just all fighting from our little laptops and like through the phone, that there are real people on the other side. How does this fold into sort of the broader picture around organizing the workers at Valencia or the adjuncts specifically? And, and what are the immediate and the more like medium to long-term demands? Yeah, well, the immediate one is that we want to vote for our unions. Um, the last time we got this close, the school hired this attorney, this law firm that they still have, to my knowledge, on retainer. Um, and they hired them to stop us from voting, which is illegal. We have the right to vote. So first thing first is to like, we need to vote to say, yes, enough of us want to have a union. Uh, and then the next step from there is, of course, figuring out what we want collectively, collective bargaining, what kind of benefits do we do we want to have, um, hours, pay, sick leave, all the things that we're not getting right now, um, making sure that, our, you know, right now our contracts are just semester to semester. But in other adjunct unions, you know, it's like a two or three year contract. So at least, you know, you have this much work, guaranteed classes for this amount of time. You know, and then also like a lot of professors, I fortunately haven't experienced this, but there's other professors where they started teaching and then weeks into the semester, they finally got their contract. And so they haven't been paid for all of that, those weeks of pay. Um, and so it's like, well, how am I supposed to, I can't quit this job, but I also need to make money from this job. You know, so it's making sure that that stops happening, that you can go to your union representative and have backup when you need to go to the administration and demand your pay for what you're worth. If there were a vote today, do you, are you pretty confident that uh, you would end up getting a majority? I think so. Yeah. From what I've heard from the greater SEIU activists or the organizers that actually work for SEIU is that we have a lot of yes signed cards um, and quite possibly even more now than before. I think, you know, the longer they, they postpone it, the more people are one hearing about it and people are getting frustrated the fact that it's taking this long. And so there's, there's more momentum now. And, um, as I was saying to other organizers today, the coronavirus has really created, um, I don't know if you're familiar with African-American history of um, Reconstruction. So like that, there's like a 10-year period after the Civil War ended, emancipation happened, but pre-Jim Crow laws, there's like that gooeyness. And that's like one of my favorite moments in American history because we had more Black delegates and congressmen and mayors and senators and um, like black intellectualism really bloomed and because people realized that because the country was in such disarray, we could create a world that was more equitable. And I really feel like because the coronavirus has basically broken America, I mean, America was already broken, but we were like hopping along, pretending like everything was all good. Um, but now it's blatant how broken it is. It's blatant how essential fast food workers are and people that work in, um, uh, are migrant workers or farmers or, you know, teachers. Like so many parents are like, oh my God, I have to like be around my children all day. Like, how do I do this? It's like, yeah, teachers were always essential. Schools were always essential, but people never paid attention to it. So it's like, um, I think in one of the speeches I said, that like, we don't want to go back to normal because normal wasn't working. We want to change America. So that way when, we, when things finally do open up and we get back on our legs and running again, 
we're much stronger and a better America going forward. You know, I'm not pro-Trump, but I think that the Trump administration has made people that were a little bit more moderate, people that were a little bit more like complacent, people that had a lot more privilege. I think it's helped shake them up that we really need to have some serious change, you know, with electoral colleges and with the way that things vote. And it'd be really interesting to see if we have another four years with him. I think if we don't, that will be a, the, the best leg up in the direction of change um, we can, you know, because then we'll start. So there'll be November and then January will quite possibly still have a lot of coronavirus and like dealing with schools and work and all that stuff. But we could have a new administration coming in to try to correct a lot of the policies and things that either weren't created or were created without actual humans in mind. And that was Adrian Alvarez, Tress Andrews, and Constance Lee talking about the July 20th strike for Black lives. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that, where we talk about pieces we read that we liked but alas, did not write. My pick for ARG is Republicans are forcing Americans to return to dangerous workplaces by David Sirota in The Guardian. At the time of this recording, Congress is wrangling over another stimulus package, deciding whether or not to scrap the expanded unemployment benefits that have been a crucial support for destitute jobless people for the past few months. Predictably, Republicans want to shred those benefits and jam in legal immunity for businesses so that they cannot be sued over COVID-19-related issues. In both parties, politicians are hoping to revive the economy to varying degrees by letting the free market flourish. Conservatives argue that we can just unleash the free flow of capital and businesses and workers will recover with as little government intervention as possible. David Sirota examines the way the free market is condemning workers to various forms of unfreedom as they are dragged back to work while COVID-19 rages across the country. The pandemic has exposed the contradictions of capitalism, and the rush to recovery will only deepen them. You might be deemed an essential worker, but when you're at work, as a hospital staffer, a warehouse worker, or a childcare provider, you are likely being treated as if you're disposable, not essential. And in order to get healthcare, you may need to go to work at a job that will make you sick. And if you try to follow the advice of health authorities and stay home to protect yourself, you might have your benefits stripped from you and deemed to be lazy, even unpatriotic, by not working. Sirota echoes a question Senator Bernie Sanders asked on the campaign trail. What does it mean to be free? He examines how the definition of freedom has been wildly distorted in the pandemic era, twisted to mean unbridled markets, zero corporate accountability, and most visibly, exercising so-called free will by not heeding medical safety guidelines. For instance, by not wearing a mask ignoring social distancing rules, maybe even storming your state legislature while brandishing a gun, all in the name of freedom. What freedom isn't, according to the champions of free markets, is freedom from want, from famine, from financial insecurity, from an abusive workplace, if you're part of the working class. It's not even the freedom to keep your children safe, given that many states are now eyeing a reopening of public schools in the fall, despite mounting scientific evidence that schools are extremely ill-prepared to carry out effective infection control. When you're poor, 
you are also never free from suspicion. You're never free from indignity or humiliating treatment from authorities, and you're never free from criminalization, especially if you're poor and black or poor and a woman or an immigrant or anyone who falls into a category that automatically exposes you to extra government scrutiny. Sirota points out that prior to the pandemic, state laws against unemployment benefit fraud were so stringent that people were often falsely accused of defrauding the state. Many suffered heavy penalties based on the suspicion that they were stealing from public coffers, when in reality, they were just really poor people trying not to starve. For corporations, however, the same level of scrutiny is never applied, so it's much easier for them to liberate themselves from legal responsibility, whether they're avoiding paying millions of dollars in taxes through an offshore tax haven or shorting their workers' paychecks by doctoring the books. Legally speaking, corporations, it turns out, are the freest people in America. Sorota writes, quote, In practice, when governors reopen their state's economies in the name of, quote-unquote, freedom, they're closing their state unemployment systems to the workers who are called back to coronavirus virus-riddled workplaces. And states have been cracking down at the urging of the Trump administration. Republicans justify all this and their attempts to scale back jobless benefits by saying that they do not want the unemployment system to financially reward people for refusing to work, unquote. That's the common argument from Republicans, that people have it too good on unemployment benefits right now, and they would rather stay home than work since they can collect an extra 600 bucks a week instead of working for less than that at a workplace that may be rife with health hazards. But can you really blame them? Sarada points out that unemployment recipients cannot refuse a job simply because of the low pay. But more importantly, he counters that the supposed disincentive to work that is provided by generous unemployment benefits is, quote, an indictment not of Americans' work ethic, but of employers' outrageously low wages. And during a pandemic, those kinds of restrictions are actually terrible policy. Unemployment benefits during a public health crisis should be deliberately tailored to empower workers to stay home, rather than swarm workplaces en masse, which might end up exacerbating the spread of the pandemic that is already annihilating our economy, unquote. Alas, corporate executives and conservative politicians aren't really factoring in endangering their workers' lives on their balance sheets. By allowing employers to determine for themselves when it is safe to reopen, Sirota asks again, what does it actually mean to be free? Sure, going back to work is not slavery, but being forced into an unsafe workplace during a deadly pandemic is also not exactly freedom either, unquote. Congress could pass legislation to explicitly enable workers to keep collecting unemployment if their workplace is unsafe to return to. But really, the right to refuse unsafe work is already enshrined in the National Labor Relations Act. However, in the pandemic era, your boss's freedom to profit seems to trump your right to be healthy. When workers across the country went on strike for Black Lives this week, they exercised their right to take collective action against injustice just for a little while. Yet that's exactly the kind of freedom that corporations militate against every day. Because once workers start to understand what freedom really means, then they start to realize how much their bosses have been getting away with. This week, I am bringing you a long, excellent piece by friend of the show and our recent guest, Bill Fletcher Jr. at Monthly Review. The piece, called Race is About More Than Discrimination, should be required reading for everyone in the labor movement. There is a reason we reached out to Bill to talk about the coronavirus crisis, the labor movement, and histories of racism just a couple of months ago. And it is on full display in this piece, which provides a history of racism dating back before the beginning of capitalism, settler colonialism, and argues that the labor movement must understand race as more than just something over which workers face discrimination, but is rather a constitutive force in the political and economic system in which we live. He writes, quote, 
the racialization embedded in a settler state is regularly reaffirmed through the practice of creating what should be understood as the so-called legitimate and illegitimate populations. This is a characteristic of racism generally, we should note, but the legitimacy question in a settler state is linked to the fusion of race and settlerism. As one sees in the United States, the critical image for white right-wing populists, fascists and non-fascists, revolves around the very notion of the United States as allegedly a white republic. This carries many implications, including some that have direct relevance to organized labor in the country. End quote. It's important to understand those implications as we look at today's political horizon. Fletcher notes that before there were labor unions as such in America, labor revolts, quote, took many forms, ranging from open-armed revolts and running away to sabotage and killing one's master, end quote. In other words, if we think that labor struggles just revolve around unionizing one's workplace, we miss an entire swath of labor resistance history where slaves rebelling were the cutting edge of labor struggle. American unions were born in the period of populism known as the Jacksonian democracy, where participation in American politics was made accessible to the working classes as long as they were white and male, that is. This is, again, an important thing to understand for unions. In the U.S., they were shaped to serve a certain kind of worker and exclude others. In this period, organized labor couldn't decide as a whole what it thought about chattel slavery. Some unions opposed it, some supported it. Fletcher notes, quote, critical to the thinking lying behind the positions of opposing and supporting slavery was the matter of workforce competition. That is, would the continuation of slavery represent competition with free labor that would lead to the degradation of the latter, or would the elimination of slavery bring about the introduction of a new workforce that would be in competition with free labor? End quote. He further notes, Quote, where a working class is divided along racial or nationality lines, attempts by one segment to go solo inevitably serve the interests of capital, are encouraged by capital, and limit the possibilities for working class power. End quote. Organized labor then accepted certain tenets of the American settler state from the start, and those tenets have shaped it. Workers who could be assimilated into whiteness were an easier fit for unions than those like, for example, Chinese immigrants who were not allowed to become white. This meant a few things. First, that labor would accept U.S. imperialism as a given. And second, and I think most important for today's struggles, Fletcher writes, quote, second and specific to the functioning of the trade union movement, the movement and its history centered around the activities of white workers, particularly white male workers. Thus, while the U.S. working class was multinational and multiracial, the movement's identity was largely shaped by the assumption that it was a component of the white republic. This meant that the official movement was inviting in workers of color rather than uniting with workers of color, end quote. While left-led and communist-led unions did better on racial inclusion, they still, for the most part, did not, Bill notes, see unions as a place to challenge the assumptions of the settler state. What does this mean for us now? It is possible to oppose racial discrimination without challenging the white supremacist assumptions baked into the very core of the U.S. capitalist project. Fletcher concludes, quote, organized labor must adopt a different framework 
that starts with the difficult discussion about U.S. history, not with the aim of creating a sense of guilt among so-called white workers, but to lay the foundation for a different domestic and international strategy for workers' rights and justice. This will be a matter of both internal education as well as a shift in the practice of trade unionism. And it will be a shift that will be met with intense resistance, particularly because in the United States, we are actively taught to oppose history and instead embrace myth. The myth of the foundation of both the United States and U.S. trade unionism are quite strong and compelling. They just happen to be wrong. End quote. There's so much more to this piece than I could sum up in a few minutes. Please do yourself a favor and go read it. We will, of course, put a link at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. And then you should probably start a reading group in your union about it. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on working from home and striking from work, on healthcare workers, food workers, and everyone else who is working in a pandemic. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis, and now to Colin Kinneberg for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. Special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, either at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our shiny new Patreon with shiny new rewards over at patreon.com slash belabored. If you don't have the spare cash right now, believe me, I understand. But if you do, and I know a lot of people are asking, and you haven't joined up yet, we have some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits as gifts for the highest tier. And as always, you can find out more about everything we've discussed today on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. Michelle and I are still doing interviews with workers all over the country and the world, organizing, rallying, fighting layoffs, and for protection on the job. If you want to share your story of work under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are cooking or cleaning, carrying packages right now, if you are fighting for more rights or having yours squeezed on the job, or if you are still not working and worried about unemployment, you can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again, and we'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>